Is this is this good? Yeah. Good morning. A couple of different friends have confessed to me that since the invasion of Ukraine, they've stopped watching the news on TV. They just can't handle the trauma of watching the daily violence being played out. And I get it. I never watch TV anyway. They have a feeling of helplessness. We have a feeling of helplessness today in the outplaying of evil. And sometimes we despair of justice being done. And our story for this morning of the wicked tenants that Jesus tells this crowd is also quite depressing. A story of greed and cruelty and violence culminating in tragedy. I mean, even a bit confusing. Why would, after this terrible treatment of his servants, why would the father send the cherished son? Only on a, perhaps they will respect him. But then it gets worse. Violent retribution and a stone that dashes and crushes. Where is the good news here? Let's pray. Father, we come before your word. We thank you that you speak to us in the midst of our darkness at this time of Lent when we are contemplating all that's going wrong in our world and in our lives. And we pray that you give us your hope. Amen. So, our parable this morning is a story within a story that plays a part in this bigger story. We need to hear today's parable as part of the unfolding drama of Holy Week that moves the action forward. And we need to take a position of our own. I often skip from Palm Sunday to Holy Thursday, forgetting about all the intense activity and teaching that were happening in between. And today's story was happening in that in-between time. Have you ever thought about the emotional roller coaster that Jesus was on that week? Today's parable and the discussion that ensues are part of the crescendo of tension leading to our Lord's passion. The parable explains the real-life events as they are unfolding. Okay, because the kids were here, I knew the kids were going to be here this morning. We're going to have a little bit of images for you guys, not the whole thing, but okay. So... This roller coaster, the first emotion that Jesus must have felt was jubilation. Why? What's happening here? It's Palm Sunday. The people are throwing palms on the ground and they're saying, Hosanna. Why are they saying Hosanna? Because Jesus the King is entering Jerusalem. He knows that this is very right because he tells the 
indignant leaders who tell him, tell the people to stop, he tells them, no. If they stop, the very stones will have to cry out. But then the next feeling is sorrow. In fact, Jesus has a knot in his throat. And when he contemplates Jerusalem, he weeps over the hardness of her heart. How I wish today that you and all your people understood the way of peace. He sees that in, a few, in one generation, this whole city will be demolished, and he weeps. And then three, Jesus is angry. Immediately after these two events, Jesus records, Luke records Jesus entering the temple. And what's he doing there? Trevor. What's he doing? Oh, I'm talking that Trevor there. It's okay. That's the Trevor I want. He's He has, he has a, a, a whip of, of cords that he made. He's driving them out. He said, you, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Okay, we can turn those down. Now, who remembers? How, what were those three feelings that Jesus experienced? I want a kid. William? No, is that Edouard? Yeah. Quelle émotion qu'il a, il vient de sentir. Trois grandes émotions. Juste une. Hein? La colère. Très bien. Right, oui, just that anger. Uh, Juliette? Sorrow. La tristesse, la grande tristesse. And the first one, somebody want to give us that one? Jubilation. Okay, kid at heart. Good. Okay, we can we can go on. You you can go back to sleep now. No, kids, I got to tell you, I spent thousands of hours listening to sermons and drawing pictures, so enjoy. Okay. Chapter 19. That's the chapter that just precedes our chapter. Closes with the stark cleavage between the crowd on the one hand and the Jewish leaders on the other. The adulating crowd who had heralded Jesus as are acting like a protective cloak around him while the scheming leaders are trying to kill him. We know the cloak will soon fall. But for the time being, it's still there. For, uh, chapter 19, 47 to 48. After that, he taught daily in the temple, but the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the other leaders of the people were planning how to kill him. But they could think of nothing because the people 
hung on every word he said. Chapter 20 opens with the leaders trying to trap Jesus with a question about the origin of his authority. But he turns their question back on them, asking where John the Baptist got his authority. They're stuck, and they can't answer for fear of the crowd who are enthusiastic believers of John. Our story will begin in the context of this fear of the crowd that the leaders have, and it will also end with their fear of the crowd. Okay, our parable. Jesus turns to the crowd, that includes, of course, the embedded leaders, and he proceeds to tell the following story about a vineyard, an absentee landlord, and cruel and greedy tenant farmers. The story seems to end in tragedy with the death of the beloved son. He uses this to ask a question of his listeners and to provoke their involvement. Then Jesus delivers the decisive blow in his argument with the leaders, the quotation of Psalm 118 that we read this morning that turns the tables of the story. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. He adds a paraphrase of Isaiah 8, 14 to 15, and Daniel 2, 35, 44 to 45. Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. Hmm. Jesus' eyes are wide open to what imminently faces him. He knows the horror, the ambush he is walking into. He knows their plotting. He sees it all. The things, he knows that things will go from bad to worse. But he's not backing down. On the contrary, he's telling the crowd and the schemers that their victory will not be the end of the story. Like all prophetic messages of doom, he is warning them. He's giving them a chance to repent. This story may appear to, at first reading to be about greed and cruelty and retribution, but in the end, it reveals the reversal that Christ's kingdom will bring. The death of the son appears to be a senseless tragedy. And yet through this death, the stone rejected will become the cornerstone of God's people. Jesus does not explain here how this outrage will be transformed into new creation. What he does affirm is that evil will not go unpunished. 
The parable is one of the few clearly allegorical parables in the New Testament. When Jesus' listeners heard it, they would most certainly have heard it against the background music of the Song of the Vineyard from Isaiah 5 that we read this morning. Just a minute. Another drink of water. That was another famous allegory that Isaiah himself would explain. And it would stir up deep emotion in the listeners. Maybe like a parable of a maple leaf and a flood of this might stir up emotions in us. Let's back up and look for a moment at Isaiah's love poem that gives us a window into God's aching heart. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. The vineyard of Isaiah's story was planted with care, given every attention possible. He waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I've already done? Isaiah interprets his allegory in verse 7. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. Knowing his audience would immediately associate his parable with Israel, Jesus takes the rich image of the vineyard planted and loved by God from Isaiah and adds new characters. The Lord of the vineyard goes away to a foreign land and rents out his vineyard to tenant farmers. This apparently was quite common in Israel of Jesus' day. Normally, the rent was paid through the harvest, either a set amount or a proportion of the harvest, whatever it was agreed upon in advance. In this parable, the issue is not the vineyard itself, or the bad grapes. It is in fact that the tenants do not want to acknowledge the owner of the vineyard or his rights to the harvest. The servants sent by the Lord of the vineyard are none other than the prophets, who instead of being honored are one after another abused and rejected. The wicked farmers are clearly the religious leaders in Israel. The beloved son, of course, I bet you can guess who that is, is Jesus himself. We are reminded of the voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism. You are my dearly beloved son. 
you bring me great joy. Or again, at the transfiguration, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey to cries of Hosanna is the son coming to claim his harvest. The son who is a king. The cries of the crowd, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, come from Psalm 118 that we read this morning, sung at the annual ceremonies commemorating the king's coronation. This, of course, is the psalm that Jesus quotes to answer them. When the landowner sends his very own son, the wicked farmers recognize him as the heir, but they refuse to acknowledge him. They apparently think the Lord has died and his heir is coming for his inheritance, so they decide to kill him, take the inheritance for themselves. The leaders of Israel are acting as though God has died or that they can replace him somehow with their own rule. These leaders couldn't help recognizing that Jesus had, was something special, teaching with authority, performing miracle after miracle, but they refused to acknowledge him. They did not want to give up their power, nor bow to the authority of one greater than they, Instead of publicly acclaiming him, receiving him, honoring and obeying him, they plot to kill him. Jesus is looking straight at those plotting against him, basically telling him that he sees right through them. He knows what they're planning. And even though the crowd is a giant shield around him right now, the plotters will succeed. Jesus is predicting his own death. Yet there's nothing frightened about him. He's warning them that this is not the end of the story. What, what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them? He asks. I'll tell you. He will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Jesus is already forecasting the birth of the church and the new leadership he will create. But then he goes even farther and he calls up the powerful metaphor from Psalm 118 of the stone rejected that becomes the cornerstone. Jesus responds to the crowd's evocation of Psalm 118. Remember they were saying, "Blessed be blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's 118. He answers with 118. Luke's, <clears throat> Luke's gospel is all about the seismic reversal that Jesus' kingdom will bring. 
Mary sings of how he's brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. This cornerstone will not just passively become the center of God's kingdom. It will bring justice. From the cornerstone of Psalm 118, Jesus expands the stone metaphor with a paraphrase taken from Isaiah 8 and Daniel 2. Maybe we can look at the picture of the cornerstone. Okay, the word in Greek is kephalegonias, which has two different translations. One is cornerstone, the first picture, and the second is capstone or keystone, the second picture. See that little itty bitty piece at the top of the ark? That's what they put in last. That's called the keystone or the capstone. And if it holds everything together. That one holds everything together. And this one over here orients the whole building. Now, for some reason, both of these translate kephalegonias. It's pierre angulaire or pierre de vôtre. It's both of them. So, when we hear the paraphrase of Isaiah and of Daniel that Jesus gives, one part seems to apply more to the first image and the second part seems to apply more to the second image. The first part, those who stumble on the stone will be broken in pieces. In this one, the stone is passive. In his humiliation, Jesus will be a stumbling block to those who are looking for a military conqueror. But in the second half of the quotation, the one on whom it falls will be crushed. It seems like it's the other one, I don't know. The stone is active. This speaks of judgment that Jesus will bring to those who oppose him. This parable of the tenants told to its first audience speaks of Israel and God's dealings with his chosen people. But it also speaks more generally of God's dealings with humanity. He has granted us freedom and responsibility. We are tenants. But he, all, um, but he, he has sent many messengers to warn us to plead with us, and he will call us to account. Humankind's greatest problem is refusing to give God his due, his glory. The religious leaders of his first audience recognize himself in the mirror of Jesus' story all too well, and they're even more angered but they're still stymied by the crowd. What do we learn about God? God is very patient. In spite of repeated dishonor and disobedience, God sends servant after servant to warn us, to invite us. His heart aches for his vineyard. But God is also a just judge. Judgment will come. He will not allow 
the rebellious to escape forever with impunity. What do we learn about Jesus? This story is a lucid mise en abime, that's the thing I told you about the last time I was here, or a miniature picture in the big picture of the salvation story. The part Jesus and his audience play, Jesus claims here to be the cherished son of God. He follows a line of prophets of who are the servants, but he is the son. He's entered Jerusalem on a donkey amidst acclamation to claim his throne, his harvest. He knows he's marching towards his own death but he has an unshakable faith that God will have the last word. Jesus assures us that justice will be done and even more astounding, that when things seem the bleakest, tragedy will turn to triumph and the victim will become the victor. Jesus is the cherished son. Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the judge. We are in the already but not yet kingdom. We agonize today and are tempted to despair at injustice. We long to see thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We must remember that Jesus never failed to affirm God's victory, to warn of judgment, even as he approached his own execution and faced his own darkest hour. In this time of Lent, let us remember that Jesus wept over his people. He expressed anger at those leading them astray. It is not inappropriate that we too feel these feelings of sorrow and anger. Whether it be about the war in Ukraine or any injustice in our lives. Let, let it, and I'm going to have to have another glass of water. Let us bring these burdens to the one who knows. He does not ask us to carry the weight of the entire world, but he does ask us to take up our cross, the one he gives us. Jesus did not lose sight of God's greater plan or his final victory even as so much is still opaque for us today, even as we pour out our hearts in repentance and petition, let us continue to praise God for the extravagant love he has poured out on us and the ultimate victory he has secured. 
the stone rejected has become the cornerstone. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>